end. I, I guess. <coughs> we had a really good weekend in Fargo. The, the uh, ministry and teaching was like it was, I mean, it's just been, it was so good. Like, uh, best we've heard in years. Seemed like, I mean, just the next on job was just working their way through passages. One guy was, Larry Price was going through Daniel. And uh, Henry was going through First Timothy, and uh, they weren't necessarily going through verse by verse, but they were selecting topics to key in on out of their passages and bring out what the what the author, what the Lord was saying in the scope of that passage, and it was a lot of good ministry. I really appreciated. Uh, we're in Luke, and uh, I'm not 100% sure where exactly we left off at, but it doesn't really matter. I think uh, just proceed on wherever I'm at, you can follow along, uh, wherever that's at. <laughs> Chapter 11 is what I... <laughs> you know, you give up on trying to follow. I'm just going to share with you some of the things that I've been enjoying as I kind of still try to grasp the flow of thought here. Is just is uh, been really challenging for me. Um, but there's things to appreciate, and it begin to become a little more clear as more times I go through this. <laughs> this is what the third time? Actually. Let's uh, read a couple verses out of chapter 10. This is kind of where this section begins at. And you can see the little geographical break there. It happened as they went. He entered into a certain village. And this is a very small little break. seems like it's, the other ones will be a little more distinct. It talks about him going to a particular city on his way to Jerusalem. Here he goes to a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him in, into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my, ser- that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. Let's pause and ask the Lord for a blessing. Our Father, as we come again to your word, there are good and rich truths in your word that are uh, beneficial to us, and so we pray that as we look into your word, that you would open our eyes to appreciate and understand the truth and the relevance of it to our lives as we look in this passage. And so we just ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. So the section here begins with a comment, a uh, contrast. You got Martha and her much serving, and then you got Mary who's sitting there doing nothing. And, and we we understand that when serving the Lord, I mean, that's what we're called to do, right, is to serve the Lord. It, it takes activity that you need to be doing things, and uh, whether it's out preaching the gospel or whether it's ministering to the poor or preparing meals or whatever it might be. And it, But it's interesting to me is what the Lord points out as important. He says, Mary has chosen that good part. And what was she doing? She was sitting at the feet and listening to his word. But it's interesting to me how the Lord phrases this that good part which will not be taken away from her. And I'm not sure, is he just saying that he's not going to tell her to get away, you know, to go serve? He's not going to tell her to stop listening. It's time for you to go serve. Is that what he's saying? Or is he saying that she is actually receiving something through the sitting and listening to his word? There's there's something from a spiritual perspective that is tangible, and not so much from a physical perspective. It's more intangible. You can't really see her getting anything or there's nothing to show for what she is doing. She, she sits there and listens. Nothing happens. I mean, she's from a physical perspective. But it almost seems like from a spiritual perspective, as the Lord looks at her, he sees her gaining something, and it will not be taken away. This is something that she will carry with her into eternity. Interesting to think of it from that perspective, because it, when you see somebody sitting and listening to teaching or reading their Bible, it doesn't look like they're getting anything. But apparently, from the Lord's perspective, it, it was something that as she listened to the word of God, there was, from a spiritual perspective, tangible benefit that would be everlasting. 
and that's the initial thought then that we get as we come into this section is that the value of the word of God to a, a believer as they sit and listen. And we think about a little bit of what we've learned about the word of God as gone through Luke and just the effect that the word of God would have. It had the effect of exposing people for who they were. It would expose their sin, even their inner sin. And made a lot of people uncomfortable. It made a lot, and made other people were <clears throat> bothered by that. And and realizing that, yeah, sin is deeply set inside of me, and, and that's a real problem. And so the Word of God would have that effect to expose the, the reality, the depth of the sin in our lives. But then it also would show the mercies of God and the salvation, especially that we provide in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it would. The Word of God had the effect of opening people's eyes to see things from God's perspective, to see sin for what it was, and to see the Savior and what he has provided, and the mercies and God's desire towards people to draw them to himself, in particular sinners, to save sinners. And these, the Word of God serves to enlighten the eye, to open our understandings that we can know who God is, in the sense of how he views things and how he would deal with things. And this is what she is doing. She is sitting here and taking in the word of God and growing in her understanding of who God is. And Jesus says that will not be taken away from her. From there then, Luke takes us onto what seems almost a completely different topic as the disciples come up and they want to know how to pray. And the Lord gives them that famous prayer that is known throughout Christianity. Uh, in 11 verse 2, he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us day by day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It's amazing to pause and think of how the Lord directed people to pray. I mean, when we think of praying, there's there's lots of different teachings on how to pray. There's uh, some branches of Christianity teach us how to get these beads, uh, rosaries, and you run them through, and they've got these prayers that you recite, and the purpose for these prayers is to gain favor with God. The more you pray and faithfully you do it, the more God smiles upon you. But the Lord, as he teaches, he says, look, when you address God, you're, you're coming before the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of creation, the great, mighty, all-powerful, everlasting God. This is how you address him. You say, our Father who is in heaven. A, a title of great tenderness. If you think of a father and his heart towards his children, <clears throat> that a, a good father wants his child to have a better life than what he had in growing up. They're always looking to improve your kid's life. It's about a good father. So you got that sense then of God wanting people to have good life, to 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 uh, abound in life, to be fruitful in life. And he has the resources to bring that about. Sometimes our fathers here on earth, they don't have the resources to put us through college or you know different things like that, depending uh, or, you know, it's just the father wants to do more for the child than what they actually can, but they just lack the resources to be able to do that. This is our father in heaven who has no lack of resources, no lack of wisdom, no lack of understanding. He is well able to provide a good and rich life. And this is the concept of the of God that the Lord wanted his disciples to have, that you're approaching a father who wants what is good for you. And the first thing that he asks them, he tells them, instructs them to pray is to hallow be your name. To hallow somebody is to set them apart from everybody else, set them up on high, you know, put them up on a pedestal. And sometimes we do that to heroes on earth, whether, you know, sports figures or whatever, and that, that's never any good. Um, but with, but with God, it's good to set him up on high in our own minds, to reverence him. One of the things I talked about, that Henry talked about this past weekend in Fargo, to reverence God. That is what godliness is. It's the, uh, that's actually the definition of godliness, is to reverence God and to put him up on high, to, 
to recognize his majesty, to acknowledge that this, this is God, and everything that he says is to be taken as coming from our creator, from the living God. And if we reverence God, it produces holiness in our lives. But here, he says, hallowed be your name. May we see God for who he is and hallow him. May his kingdom come. Now, this concept of kingdom is going to develop a little bit throughout this section. I want to turn your attention to Romans chapter 14 for a real short definition or description of what the kingdom of God is. In Romans chapter 14, Paul is talking about different kinds of food and how back in that day, you know, there was questions about whether certain food was good to eat or not. You know, this food had been dedicated to idols. Should you eat that food or not? And this food was considered unclean to the Jews. Should you eat it or should you not? And there's lots of debate about that. And so he says in, in Romans 14, verse 17, he says, the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking. It's not about what you eat or what you drink. That's not what makes the kingdom of God. It was it was for the children of Israel. That was their kingdom. Their nation was or often was in part defined by what they ate and what they drank and so forth. But the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is what the kingdom of God is. You want to see the kingdom of God spread? It's a, it's a growth of righteousness. It's a growth of peace and of joy in the Holy Spirit. And some of these things we can really appreciate these days as we see righteousness begin to, uh, as we see unrighteousness begin to increase and righteousness is uh, a downward spiral. It seems like the world is full of wickedness and peace is uh, with all the conflict and so forth, and, and who even knows joy. But when you think of the kingdom of God, particularly in our lives, like to have righteousness established in my life. And it's not, we're not just talking about doing what is right so that when people look at me, they see me doing good things. But there's a certain level of inside where it is unrighteous, that the word of God has exposed that unrighteousness. How do you establish righteousness inside me. And the reality is that we know as believers that righteousness is established in us through the Lord Jesus. And that righteousness that he establishes in us through the salvation that he provides brings such peace to know that all is well between me and God. And that is followed with joy. This is the kingdom of God. This is what the Lord is teaching his disciples to ask for that this kingdom of God would come and be established in my life and in those around me. And for your will to be done is talking about God's will for righteousness and peace and joy to be established. Let it be done here on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, righteousness is established and peace and joy. Let it be here as well. Let it not be that we have to wait until we get to heaven before we can enjoy righteousness, joy, and peace, but let us enjoy it here. And then he goes on and talks about daily bread, but I was just thinking about these, this first half of the, the prayer and the things that the, the Lord was teaching his disciples to ask for. The passage continues on, and he starts. he discusses, or, or he talks about the... Uh, uh, a, a situation where if you have somebody show up at your house late at night, say midnight from the airport or something like that, and and it's, it's been a long and hard journey for them, and, and they're tired and hungry and so forth, but you find out you don't have anything in the cupboard to give them. Fortunately, they've shipped some Reese's Pieces to themselves and Amazon, and so they're good to go. But suppose you didn't have the Reese's Pieces for them to munch on. And you, know, you had to go on over to your neighbor's house to get this food. And you go pound on his door at midnight. He's not going to be too excited to get up and get you some food. Why didn't you make food? Didn't you? Didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> so the thought crosses your mind to raid his chicken coop and get some food that way. But, <laughs> but uh, you, out of desperation, you know, they need some food. And he's like, why didn't you prepare food ahead of time? I mean, you knew they were coming, didn't you? Uh, well, not at midnight. And... Uh, you keep pounding on the door, knowing that sooner or later he will get out of bed and he will give you the food. 
that you need to uh, provide nourishment for your guests. And he says, this is how you're supposed to pray. That when you have a need, somebody comes to you and they they don't have the joy, they don't have the peace, or they don't have, or the righteousness is, seems far from them. What kind of food can you give them to nourish their soul? How can you strengthen them? He says, you go pound on the door of your father. <laughs> Funny how that parallel just worked out. <laughs> go pound on the door of your father. And according to this verse, whoever knocks, the door will be open. He asks, you receive. <laughs> At least from the father in heaven. And you notice how he... What he says as he as he closes out the path, as he closes out the uh, the parallel there in verse eleven and twelve, he starts talking about how God is going to give you what is good. If if you as an earthly father can give your child what is good, then know that God is going to give you what is good. He's much better than an earthly father. But notice what he gives at the end of verse thirteen: the Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. And it turns out that that's what we need if we're going to minister to our our guests who are in need. That we really lack the capability to meet their needs. And I think this is one of the big mistakes that perhaps the Christian church has made is that we often turn people to counselors or to uh, books that will help them and so forth. And because those things, you know, they, they provide a promise of help and hope and the reality is that we don't have what we need. That's why we have to turn them to somebody else. We we lack the how do how do you how do you establish righteousness in somebody's life, or how do you implant peace into somebody's life that's or bring bring about joy? But the way it's done is that as I mean, you ask the Father, how can I give to minister to my my brother here, and to be able to or he enables us as we begin to minister that all we find that we are able to minister some way in, in different ways whether it's teaching the word or whether it's talking one on one that if we rely upon God look to God he gives us the spirit to be able to minister to our fellow believers and provide what they need to nourish them and, and uh, encourage them and build them up So the Lord, as he teaches his disciples to ask, he's saying, you know, you can ask for all kinds of things. You can ask for a car. You can ask for Reese's Pieces or whatever you want. I'm sure God will provide that. But what God is looking for you to ask for is the, the establishment of his rule, his righteousness, his peace and joy inside you. And to give you, I mean, when, when, you, when you are in a place where you are at peace with God because of the righteousness that the Lord Jesus has established in your heart. And when there's that joy of knowing that all is well between you and God, and a fellow believer comes into your life, you are so able to minister to them and build them up and encourage them. And that is a work of the Holy Spirit to establish these things in our lives. And this is what the Lord is telling us in this gospel. The truth of the word of God that Mary took in being applied in the believer's life that to bring about or to to establish the reality of the righteousness and joy and peace to be able to minister to those around. It's like the Lord gives a little bit of a snapshot of what it, what it, he wants it to be like under the rule of God, under his rule. It brings about great change in people's lives. When you take somebody who is troubled by their sin, who is corrupted by sin, and bring them into that kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy, it brings about a huge transformation in people's lives. I mean, I point to Tim as an example. I mean, we've seen him over the years and seen the impact that it's had on his life to begin walking with the Lord in, in each of our lives. It makes it such a stark contrast then as we continue on in the passage, you know, in chapter 11, verse 14, it talks about how he was casting out a demon and was mute 
So when the demon had gone out, the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. And others, testing him, sought him, sought from him a sign from heaven. So he did this work of delivering somebody from the bondage of a demon. And that's a vicious, difficult bondage to break out of, to get somebody delivered from the influence of a demon, especially if they're possessed. That's hard. And he did it. And it's a difficult bondage to be under. It, it, they mess with people's minds and souls and, and destroy their lives. And he delivered them. And some people stood by. We're given two responses here. Some people stood by as they watched this happen. They watched a man being delivered from bondage. And they had two responses. One, one group of people said, what he has done here is done by the power of Satan. It clearly is supernatural. He didn't do it of his own. But he didn't do it from God either. And then other people said, is he really from God or not? Can you show us a sign from heaven to show us whether or not you were really from God? And so the next little bit here is going to address those two questions of people's response to Jesus delivering from bondage. And it's also going to expose a little bit of why people would choose to respond to this. Why wouldn't they just recognize this man as a demon cast out of him? It was God that delivered him. Why didn't they just embrace that reality? Why did they have to make up these things like he's doing it by Satan or it's they're not exactly sure who he's doing it from. They want some kind of sign from heaven. So in verse 17, he, he knows their thoughts. He knows what they're thinking. And he says, look, it's not possible for Satan to be casting out demons because when you start having Satan fighting against himself, it's going to weaken his kingdom. You can't, uh, you can't establish a kingdom by having a lot of infighting. That's probably one of the biggest dangers that the U.S. faces at the moment is that there's beginning to develop a lot of infighting and it's hard to establish a nation or a kingdom in that situation. So you notice how he's bringing the concept of a kingdom into play here. And he's talking about, you'll, you'll see that uh, in verse 21, he talks about how a strong man fully armed stands over his own palace and his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from all his armor, which he trusted, and divides his spoils. And then he says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. But he's got this concept of kingdoms, and you've got more, you've got... A, a kingdom established and everything is settled and then somebody else comes that's a little bit stronger and they engage in battle and they defeat the uh, established one and take away all of his stuff and leave his, and he no longer has his kingdom. His kingdom has been taken away from him. Now the Jews would have been very familiar with this concept because this was the time after the Maccabees when you had the Greeks, the Seleucids up in the Syrian area and then you had the Ptolemies, Ptolemies down in the Egyptian area. And if you read in Daniel, you read about how the king of the north would come down and battle against the king of the south, and then it would reverse, and the king of the south would come up to the north and battle against them. Well, in order for them to battle against each other, the one in the north, the one in the south, Israel was in the middle. And so every time they came and fought, you'd have the one king would come and conquer, they would defeat the Egyptians, and the... Uh, and Israel would be under the Seleucids. And then you'd have the Egyptians come up and they would fight against the Seleucids and drive them back up. And now Israel would be under the Egyptians. So they knew what it meant to be under a strong man and then have a stronger come up and defeat them, the strong man. And, and the, for the goods to switch possession from one to the other multiple times. So you imagine what it would be like for a Jew under that situation. Here you are under the Seleucids, and you don't like the Seleucids. They don't treat you very well. They tax you, and they beat you, and they throw you in prison and things like that. So here comes the Ptolemies. You have a decision to make as this new king comes in with his battle. Are you going to support the new king, hoping that he will win? Because if you support the new king, and he doesn't win, the old king is going to bring fire brimstone on your head. You've got to make a choice of which one you're going to support. If you just stand by and do nothing, and the new king, as he comes in, and you're just standing by and do nothing, if the new king conquers and you didn't lift a finger to help, well, you're not going to get much benefit. They're not going to look very favorably upon you. To stand aside and not help when the new king is coming in is actually to be supporting the old king. What Jesus is telling them is that 
There is two kingdoms here. You've got the kingdom of Satan and you've got the kingdom of God. And you see that the kingdom of God is coming upon you. I am casting out, if I, if I am casting out demons and it's not by the power of Beelzebub, but it's by the finger of God, the new king is coming. And if you stand by and you don't commit yourself to the new king, then you are viewed as supporting the old king. And the new king coming in was the Lord Jesus, was God. So he's saying, look, you're, you're looking at God with his kingdom coming in, and you're standing back and saying, well, let's see if who wins this one. Let's see if this kingdom of God actually turns out to be something worth living under. Or it doesn't make, he said, you're, you're in a really bad spot if you don't ally yourself to your own God, the God of your fathers. Then he talks about, uh, he talks, he, goes, he has this little story about, in verse 24, about an unclean spirit goes out of a man and he, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none. He says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order and he, he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself and they enter and dwell there and the last state of that man is worse than the first. Kind of a funny little story. One that it's hard for us to identify with, you know, you got this guy, he's demon-possessed, the demon is cast out, he cleans up his life, it's all nice and clean, the demon comes back and he sees, well, it's got a nice clean house here, so he goes and gets seven other demons, and then they repossess the guy, and now the guy's worse off than what he was before, because instead of one demon, now he's got eight. That's a really weird story. But the Lord is driving home a point, he said, look, suppose... Suppose you're sitting here under the domain of Satan and you've got these demon-possessed people and so forth, and here you see the kingdom of God coming, and he begins to cast out these demons, and he begins the kingdom of God begins to be established and his rules is, is beginning to take over the land. Why don't you commit yourself to the new king? Why don't you commit yourself to God and, and throw all in with him? Well, maybe because... You know, when they sat there under the, what, they, what the Jew wanted when the Seleucids would come down or to Ptolemies, they didn't want to be Egyptian or they didn't want to be Syrian. They wanted to be Jewish and just leave us alone. You know, we'll just stand back. You come fight your battle out in the pasture and then you all leave and we'll go back to farming or whatever it was. You know, just leave us alone. We don't want either one of you ruling over us. And we just want to be free. And that's all fine, and that's they wanted independence. But the problem with independence is that if you're not strong enough, you can't maintain your independence. The, there will be somebody that will come along and see what goods you have, and they want to take it for themselves, and then you end up in a worse state than what you are because they take all your goods away from you instead of having to pay taxes. Imagine it like the children of Israel as they wandered through the wilderness. Suppose God had delivered the children of Israel from the Egyptians. It was a terrible bondage. Now you're free. You can go and live your life. And suppose God just stepped back and let the children of Israel wander off into the wilderness and head off to the promised land while he went back up to heaven and just let them find their own way. What would have happened? Somebody would have come along and enslaved them again. Why not? Here's a bunch of slaves wandering around. They're broke free from their master. Uh, remember the story of Balak and Balaam and how the the trick that Balaam played on Israel. He said, "Well, send your the, the cursing wasn't working." So then Balaam said, "Well, send your life, your your daughters into the Israelites and get them to start worshiping your gods, and in that way you can take them down." And so they would have been brought into a worse bondage than what they had left when they left Egypt. That's what people would do: is they would take advantage of these. These slaves as they're going through the wilderness and they bring them into worse bondage than what they were before. That's what Jesus is saying, is that if you if you try to find independence where you don't have to be under the rule of Satan or under the rule of God or whatever, you just live your own life the way you want to, you're gonna end up you you don't have the ability to withstand the enemies that are out there that would want to take you down and destroy your life. You have to commit to God if you want to stay free from the bondage of Satan. So, at this point then, Luke inserts a little statement here in verse 27. It says that, And it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you 
and the breasts that nursed you. But he said, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It's an interesting point to bring up here. For the children of Israel, when they were first brought in under God's rule as a nation, they come out of Egypt and they were brought under God's rule. He became their God. They became his people and he would care for them, watch out for them. They were brought in under God's rule because of lineage. They were the children of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And so because they were Israelites, then the covenant was established between God and Israel. And so lineage really counted as far as how close you could be to God. If you were of the Levites, you could be closer than the rest of the Israelites. If you were of the house of Aaron, you could be even closer yet. So this woman, as she cries out from the crowd, she's like, you know, this new kingdom of God coming... Boy, your mom has a special spot. She she is close to you. She's looking at family lines. She would say your brothers are in a great spot as well because they are your close kin and they're going to have high places in the kingdom. But the Lord says, no, no. More than being physically, uh, having, having a physical lineage close to Christ, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. The real close connection with Christ is with the hearing of the word of God and receiving it, taking it in and understanding the truths of God. That is how the kingdom of God is established. That is how somebody is brought close to the kingdom of God. So what the Lord is saying is, look, when... I come in and I begin to deliver people from the bondage of Satan. It is absolutely necessary that they put themselves under the rule of God by taking in the word of God and taking in the truths that God conveys through his word. Without that, it's like cleaning your house and you get, okay, so you got a nice good life. You're free from the bondage of sin and Satan. But not taking in the word of God you're going to end up in a worse bondage than what you did before, what you had before. The word of God, hearing the word of God, keeping the word of God, is what establishes the kingdom of God and all the security and the blessing under his rule. Without that, you're susceptible to worse bondage than we had before. That was the first objection that they put out, was that this guy casts out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And he says, no, it's not by Beelzebub, but you need to submit yourselves to the rule of God. And apparently, they didn't want to. The things that he taught them about the word of God made them uncomfortable. It exposed their sin, and they didn't like that. They said, this guy can't be from God. He says all these mean, nasty things about me and my own sin and so forth. And they, they didn't want him to be from God. They didn't want to submit to his rule. And they preferred to say that he came from Beelzebub rather than he came from God. Because if he came from God, then they would be obligated to submit themselves to him. But he said, no, you can know that I've come from God because of the word of God. I teach you the word of God. That's the essence of the kingdom of God. Their second objection that they had brought up was they wanted a sign from heaven. And so now in verse 29, he begins to address that. The crowds were thickly gathered together and he began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. Now a lot of times, or in, in the other gospel, when he talks about the sign of Jonah the prophet, he talks about Jonah being in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights and then coming back. And using that in a reference to himself and his being in the grave for three days and three nights and then rising from the dead, that that would be a sign to Israel. But that's not in view as much here. He doesn't mention the three days and three nights here, you'll notice. He says in verse 30, As Jonah became a sign to Ninevites, so the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up in judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah's here. Jonah became a sign to Nineveh in that he came and preached to them the word of God. He said, 
40 days and this city will be destroyed. And that became a sign to them. This prophet, as he walked around proclaiming the word of God, they realized we are indeed due to trouble because of what the God is going to bring the judgment upon us. And this man is a sign to us that what we have been doing is wrong and it's going to bring judgment upon our heads. That simple little word of God became a sign to them. And he compares it also to the queen of the south who came up to visit Solomon. That she heard of the wisdom of his words, the things that he said. And she said, I've got to get more of that. And she came to hear more. Jonah and his word of judgment and the queen of the south and Solomon, his word of wisdom. And Jesus said, look, Jonah's message was short and simple. They repented at it because it was the word of God. The Lord's message was long and involved. He taught, he taught them day, for, day after day in their synagogues and out in the wilderness. He would teach them, giving them the word of God. And their response was, are you really from heaven? He says, look, in verse 33, no one when he has lit a lamp puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand that those who come in may see the light. God has lit the light. This is not a secret sign, a, a thing that you have to really struggle to even find any information about. This is something that he, God has put out. He said when, when God sent the Lord Jesus, the intention was that Jesus would be seen clearly, that it was, it was not something hidden, but that people could easily hear what he had to say and and it was like a light. Like a, putting a light on a lampstand. The intention is that the light spreads through the room. The Lord Jesus came with that intention. That the light of the truth of the word of God that he spoke would spread throughout the region. But the problem was in verse 34. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore when your eye is good the whole body is also full of light. But when your eye is bad your body is full of darkness. So he talks about. He takes that metaphor of the light shining through a room, and now he turns it a little bit, and he says, okay, now in your body, you can be in a room, and you, if you close your eyes, your outside can be fully lit up, and you can be clearly seen. But as long as your eyes are closed, that light is not coming inside. And so your body is dark on the inside. No light inside of it. That's the... The metaphor that he's bringing out here. And in the next part, he begins to explain what that metaphor means. As he goes and visits with the Pharisee, and the Pharisee sees that he didn't wash before dinner, didn't wash his hands, uh, according to the rituals of the Pharisees. And verse 39, the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, you make the outside of the cup and the dish clean, but your inward part is full of, is full of greed and wickedness. So the Pharisees had the habit of standing before the word of God and they would look at the outside, what they did, how they behaved, the things that they did. Did they keep the law? And did they go above and beyond and keep even the traditions of the elders? Did they do these actions? And, it, and they, they worked hard to make sure that they did what was right in front of everybody at all times. And they were more or less successful at doing that. And the Lord is saying, look, yes, the, the word of God is a light <clears throat> to expose how you behave and the actions that you do. But it's more than that. You need to open your eyes and let that light shine inside. He said, you guys have done a great job of scrubbing the outside of the cup and the dish clean. But you're inward. You've got a lot of problems on the inside and you're not addressing that. He says in verse 40, foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? What the Pharisees had a problem with is that inside they were, there was some uglies, some greed, and other wickedness inside of them. They didn't let it show on the outside. They didn't walk around uh, being greedy about you know taking these things, or they didn't demonstrate wickedness. They were careful to keep the outside things that they did uh, clean and pure. And when they achieved some level of perfection in their actions, they, they assumed then that they were good before God. And they ignored the reality of the inside and their, their thoughts and their desires and their, 
The Lord is saying, no, God did the outside and the inside. You have to deal with the inside too. And he shows how they tithe money and mint and herbs and all these different kinds of things. But he says, look, you guys have been shown mercy and you have the justice and the love of God. You ought to show these as well. You're he shows how their inner attitudes have, have affected how they act. But it's the inner attitudes that are the problem. And they haven't dealt with it. And you can see that at verse 53 and 54, after he gets done talking to these Pharisees, that the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. And you look at their, their response to what Jesus said. They were like, their response was to go after Jesus and try to figure out how to take him down. Why? Well, Jesus had just kind of told them who they were. He said, look, you have greed and wickedness inside of you. They didn't like that. He said, well, who do you think you are? I mean, calling us full of greed and wickedness. I mean, what do you got inside of you? And they try to dig and probe and poke and try to find something that they can say, see, you're not any better than the rest of us. I mean, you think you're such a good... They, they didn't like when Jesus exposed their inner sin. They didn't like when he opened their eyes and the light shone inside, not just on the outside. And that greed and wickedness becomes exposed. They didn't like that at all. And they, they fought against him. And that was their problem. To take in the word of God, to hear it and receive it, that when that light shines on the inside and there that greed and wickedness is exposed, the proper response is to say, that's a problem. That is sin. I don't care how perfect my outside is, but the inside is a problem. It's, it's like the Pharisees, when they, they thought that when they come before God and he would judge them at the end of the day, he would take all their actions and put them on a scale and see how well they balanced out for righteousness or whatever. But what they forgot was that God didn't just look. He told them way back in the days of David. He said, I don't just look on the outside, the outer appearance, and see how good you look on the outside, but I look at your heart too. You have to, we have to measure you up inside and outside. And the Pharisees were all concerned with the outside and kind of forgot about the inside. Who can change the inside anyhow? How do you get rid of greed? And how do you get rid of wicked thoughts? The best you can do is not act on those things. And then just kind of shove them aside as best you can. And that's what they did. They didn't act on them, and they acted what was good. The inside was just full of corruption. They were hoping that God would just measure them on the outside and let them in. But no, Jesus says, God's going to measure you on the inside, and you're going to be found wanting because you're so corrupt on the inside. Let the word of God come in and expose the corruption both on the outside and the inside. Yes, I am a sinner. Yes, there's sin inside of me, and it is a real problem. So in chapter 12, then he, then he it's, it says a, that uh, in verse 1, towards the end of the verse, it says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. And whatever you have spoken in the ear and inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Like, Just thinking about what the hypocrisy for the Pharisees was. A lot of times when we think of hypocrisy, we think of somebody who goes to church and they talk to all the Christians real nice and friendly, and then they go back home and they beat the wife. That's, that's real hypocrisy. I don't think the Pharisees did that. I don't think they went to the synagogue on Saturdays and they talked real nice to their, friend, their fellow Jews and then went home and beat their kids. The Pharisees stayed clean all week long both the Sabbath day and then the rest of the week. And they were clean at home, and they were clean out in the street. Their hypocrisy was that on the inside there was wickedness that they weren't acknowledging. On the outside, they looked good, but inside there was sin. 
and they weren't acknowledging it. They were doing their best to suppress it. They were doing their best to, to push it aside and to not act on it. And Jesus said, that is hypocrisy. Don't do that. Know that whatever is on the inside will be brought out into the light. Why do people do that? Why do people uh, pretend like everything is fine on the inside by making sure that the outside looks good? Well, the reason is because we're afraid of what people think of us. And we're not taking into account what God thinks of us. And the fact that he sees on the inside and on the outside. So the Lord Jesus says to his disciples, he said, look, guys, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you shall fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, can cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. I'm speaking of God here. God has the power to cast into hell. He's the one that can take a look at our life, and he can look at the outside, and he can look at the inside, and based on how we've done on either the outside or the inside, or both, he can make the judgment call to cast us into hell. Fear him. Recognize that he does see the inside and the outside. Reverence him. Hallow his name. And get right before him. But he doesn't stop there. He continues talking about fear. He says in verse 6, Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins, and not one of them is forgotten before God? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Do not fear that God is out to destroy you, that he is, when he sees that sin on the inside, that he is going to give you the old boot clear out of the county type of thing or into the next century. Don't fear that God is out to destroy you. He is exposing your sin because he is light and he wants to deal with your sin. in his kindness and compassion and in his mercies. And he doesn't stop there. He says, also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man will confess before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before men, he will be denied before the angels of God. So this confession that he's talking about seems to be if you confess, there is, I mean, the people... Uh, if you do not confess, you are doomed forever. <laughs> so it's, it seems to be more that, that line of salvation to, uh, perhaps as Romans says, confess Jesus as Lord. To say, this is my Lord. This is the one who has... It's, it's not that I have done so well to deliver myself from the bondage of sin and have suppressed all my evil desires and now I do what is righteous. But he has seen me for who I am and he has exposed me both on the inside and the outside and he has shown all of my wickedness and he has saved me he is my Lord he is the one who protects me who provides for me who, who is my ruler confess this he is the key to being delivered from bondage and being brought into the blessings of God God will judge and has judged sin. Fear him, but do not fear because of his love and his compassion to you. You are more value to him than of all the other creatures in the world. And he has sent his son, so acknowledge him as your Savior and as your Lord. And then he says that, Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. There is a difference. We see lots of people who, not knowing who Jesus is, use his name as a curse word. Or they even speak against him. And they have no idea, really, who Jesus is. Never read the Bible or anything like that. But they just curse him. That will be forgiven. That can be forgiven. But for somebody who looks at the work of the Holy Spirit to take somebody out of the bondage of Satan and bring them into righteousness and peace and joy and the transformation that happens in a person's life and say, that is not of God, that is of Satan. 
How will you ever find forgiveness if you deny that work of the Holy Spirit? And then he closes by saying, when they bring you into synagogues and magistrates, or bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And so we come all the way back to when he was talking. You ask the Father if he will give you the Holy Spirit. And in that passage, he was talking about ministering to your fellow um, believer, uh, the person, the guest who's coming to your house. Here he is talking about the ability to speak that truth in the word of God, even in front of your enemies. The kingdom of God to be under his care, under his blessing, brought there by the Son of God, our Savior, and kept and nourished there by the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the kingdom of God. This is the rule. This is what the Lord Jesus is trying to convince the children of Israel to buy into, to commit themselves towards. And he shows how the word of God is key to entering into the kingdom of God and under his rule. So those were some of the things that I was thinking about and enjoying as I went through this passage and trying to understand how these things all fit together. I trust that it was a blessing. My Father, we come before you and we do thank you for, if nothing else, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, seeing our sin and knowing us, knowing who we were, what kind of mess we were in, had compassion upon us and gave himself up that we might be saved. We just thank you for the riches of his grace towards us and the salvation that we have in him. I do ask that you would work in our lives to teach us the, the reality of how you view us in the care of a father and to hallow your name, to reverence you and to know of your greatness and the security that we have in your salvation, that your righteousness be established, and that righteousness would be established in us, and we find that peace and the joy before you, that these things would be so, Father. And so we ask for your continued work in our lives and your keeping. In the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.